there's only one feed. There's only one feed. And everybody's gonna fill it. And right now, it is really underpriced on TikTok and LinkedIn. Please squeeze those lemons, please. This is the Gary V Audio Experience. Really appreciate both of you being here. So you guys are friends, so I'd love to start off with, tell us a little bit about your relationship and how you've worked together over the years. Well, so, so um, this is a great story. So I used to work at the New York Jets, and I'm a new sport fans here, but uh, it's that other team that was doing so great since I left. Uh, but I used to work at the New York Jets, and I oversaw the business operations of the team. And, and my, 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 uh, my sales team would say to me, listen, there's a guy in New Jersey, a little unorthodox, uh, but he owns this wine business, and he's a huge Jets fan, and he says one day he's going to buy the team. He's probably delusional, but we think he's pretty successful, and he certainly has enough money to buy a suite. So will you go meet him? and try to sell them a suite. Now, that suite is probably the hardest thing you could sell in all sports. It's like the, the most thankless job. So I said, you know, fine. So I go to meet Gary, he agrees to meet me at a bagel store. Uh, and within the first 60 seconds, it's like, there's no way this guy's buying a suite. <laughs> he's, you know, he's no need for it. But he's going on and on, he's sort of frenetic, and this is Gary circa 2009. And there's a point in the story. And so for the first 10 minutes, I'm thinking like, what the hell? Gesticulating or whatnot. But in the second 10 minutes, Gary started making all these prediction, predictions about how the world was changing. And about, at the time, Twitter had just launched a couple years earlier. And one of, I'll give you some of them back then, uh, that social media is going to enable every single person to be their own content machine. And these big companies are like battleship carriers. There's no way they're going to be able to keep up with it. So they're going to need to outsource it. So me and my little brother, AJ, who's graduating from college, we're gonna create this firm and we're gonna crush it. We're gonna get every firm and every big company in America to go ahead and hire us. And so, you know, throughout the next 10 minutes, you could really see that Gary had inside of himself this crystal ball that a few people have, right? And it's very easy to dismiss and look past the sort of, you know, background of this before he was huge, look past, you know, everything. And, and that was the beginning of a relationship. And I like to say I became VaynerMedia's first client at the New York Jets. I got Gary on the cheap. I gave him four Jets tickets <laughs> to take one player who didn't deserve to be famous and make him Twitter famous, right? And so we took Kerry Rhodes, right, who's a safety, now known as Mr. Hollywood. And over the next probably six months, Gary put together a plan to take Kerry Rhodes and... Who's a safety. Who was a safety. Not a quarterback. A safety. It's important. And that was the beginning. And he became the most followed football player on Twitter within the year. Yep, and so for the next, just like you're about to do coming out of here, for the next 10 years I spent basically copying Gary's ideas and taking credit for it. <laughs> and it's worked out very, very well. <laughs> and so, believe me, we tried. <laughs> and then we became partners on the firm. So three years after Intervania, uh, we did a deal, it took about a year to put together, and we became our business partners. That's great. So I'm going to bring you both back. Um, not to the bagel shop, but even before that. So I think one of the things that I've always been fascinated about both of your stories is you both come from really humble beginnings. Gary, you mentioned it a little bit in your speech. How has that shaped your business philosophy, your personal philosophy, the decisions that you make? Yeah, we always do the who, who was poor and the who thing growing up. But, but I think for me, um, I grew up, uh, for those of you who don't know, you know, I grew up dirt poor in Queens, really tough circumstances. Uh, my mother was a single parent. Uh, always struggling just to keep our head up above water. No health insurance, no Medicaid. Lots of times going to the food pantry, to, you know, going to the indignity of getting a box of food, but taking a bus an hour away so nobody in the neighborhood knew it. And I kind of went through everything, spending nights at an ER uh, emergency room because we didn't have insurance. So I witnessed all, all that suffering, and I learned the most important lessons in my life when I was 16 years old. One, no one's going to rescue you. No one's going to come in. The government doesn't come and swoop in and save you. Two, no one has context. At the time, I would spend all my energy trying to conceal what I was going through at home, because every kid doesn't want people to know we're at war. You know, we had Jordan jeans and guests. I would do whatever it would take to wear those brands so nobody knew, but nobody has context. And so it's very easy to listen to other people's opinion, but at the same time, it's invalid. They don't know what they're talking about because you haven't shared what's really going on in your life. And so I came up with this crazy plan when I was 16. If I stay on the current trajectory, my mother's gonna continue to get uh, more sick. There's no money, there's no foreseeable way out of poverty. Or, I could do something radical. I could drop out of high school at age 16, there was, a little, there was a little loophole in the system at the time, get my GED and go to college. Knowing that instead of making $5 an hour, like I was at the daily working overnight, I probably could get a job making $11 as a college student. 
Everyone in my life told me, you're crazy, you're gonna throw your life away, you'll never shake the stigma of being a high school dropout, which I think worked out. You'll be a loser forever. I remember the last day I decided to drop out of high school, I had to walk back and give your textbooks. It's like a, a walk of shame in high school. They make you go to each class and submit your textbook. And I remember walking into my science teacher, Mr. Rosendahl, uh, may he rest in peace. But uh, he, uh, I walk in, I hand my book, and he looks at me and he goes, oh, hey, what a, what a shame. And he goes, I'll see you in McDonald's. And I remember I'm about to, I have my, it's a true story, I have my hand on the door, I'm about to walk out and I turn around and say, you know what? If you see me in McDonald's, it's because I bought it. And then I walk out. Good for you. Yeah. Good for you. So, bought a Big Mac or bought McDonald's itself? Got it, got it. Just, just want to make sure I understood the story. So, so the, the moral of the story, at least I've taken for the rest of my life, at that moment, when I wasn't sure, tons of Ubers, like, is this really going to work out? That, that you have to trust that, that inner light, that little bit of intuition, which, by the way, is most refined when your back is up against the wall. Like, God gave us intuition for the times in life when you can't operate with a man. Right? And, and for me, I always go back to sitting on the steps of Cardoza packing up. With Marlboros and smoking a cigarette thing. Did I just throw my life away? Everybody seems to believe. But I'm pretty sure that if I get a GD and I start Queen's College, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull this off. A year later I go to my prom as the president of the debate team. And I remember going up to my science teacher and said, How do you like that? And he goes, Good boy. Yeah. So <laughs> Um, you know, I think something you just said in there is incredibly profound. I love the idea of nobody's gonna rescue you. I think some of the best and worst decisions I've ever made in my personal career is when I believed in myself. And it didn't matter whether they were good or bad decisions, what's carried me to where I am is just making the decision and having the courage to just trust, trust your gut a little bit. You're, all, you're also not gonna know the alternative. The, the thing that I keep trying to push people to just make a call is there is no machine that would have showed you what the alternative would have been. Make a decision and move, and when it fails, don't dwell and make another decision. Yeah, the, the universe people always have. I've been around, I've been fortunate to be around a lot of prominent people, a ton of billionaires, get a chance to sort of conduct my own longitudinal study in real time. And I think my, my biggest takeaway, the common denominator, without question, is persistence and grit will you know, outpace intellect and everything else. So to persist- Intellect is soft. Is to prevail, huh? Intellect is soft. Yeah, exactly, and, and that, so interesting, the universe does definitely favor those who have a bias towards action. Yeah. And decision making or making up the volume. Yeah. I love that. I say it. Intellect is also commoditized. Knowing information today has zero value. Alexa and Siri and Google search, and you've got the information. It, it's just remarkable how much information has been commoditized. We all in this room grew up in a system that made us memorize information as a query towards success, and it has zero value. And it doesn't mean you keep Sometimes people conclude then that oh, if I just keep trying doing the same thing over and over again, eventually I'll succeed. That's not the case either. I think yeah. there's a degree of fetishism of failure lately which drives me crazy. Like failure is useful, but it's useful for you to learn what failure is trying to tell you so that you pivot and you iterate, not that you continue to do the same thing over and over again. Yeah, there's there's an extremely fine line between optimism and delusion. <laughs> Where are we on that line? Depends on which chair you're in. Just depends on the day. <laughs> I was gonna say it depends yeah. on the day. So talk to me a little bit more about that because I think that failure lesson is really important to your point. I think there's that difference between failing over and over again and failing and learning and changing and growing. What's the biggest mistake you've made that's put you where you are today? And don't say trusting Gary. No, I, I, lately I've been fascinated with this mistake which is starting to play out. And Gary can relate to this. Gary is much better at playing offense. I, I tend to ruminate a bit on my mistakes and, and play defense more than, than Gary does. And it's something I, I work on personally and professionally. But now I'm starting to realize the amount of money I've left on the table by playing small when I was young. The, 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 I'm it's now starting to compound. Like we're in the hundreds of millions of dollars now. Because, and usually what happens is, and we all go through this in our life, right? We know we're right, our intuition tells us we're right, our experience tells us we're right, but something's going on around us. Maybe it's personal, you're going through divorce. Maybe it's professional, you just have a loss. And so you're feeling a little insecure and vulnerable, and so you play it safe. And there's been times professionally when I took a hit, and we have a huge soccer business, it's a little shaky, <laughs> and then I and then I intensive. And now I look back, and those mistakes are starting to really compound. So like I've left a lot on the table by, by not acting. And I think one of the things I admire about Gary, he definitely does not tell me that. Like, he makes a mistake, he powers through it, keeps going. Is there one, though, that was pivotal to your success today, Gary? About? For, for me, the biggest, you know, on paper, I've made a lot of mistakes because 
I spent the first 12 years of my life working 95 hours a week building a wine business for my dad and left at 34 with no net worth and no money. That's, I guess, could be viewed as a mistake. You know, for me it's what I wanted to do to pay back my parents. Then I made another mistake, potentially, in starting a business and making my brother a 50% partner when he's coming out of school and I had all the leverage. And then, I, you know, as Matt intimately knows, then I have to buy him out when maybe the dynamics of the percentage weren't fair, but that's what felt like the right thing to do. So my biggest mistakes financially have been predicated on me leaning towards family versus dollars, which is great in your 20s and 30s. I think the biggest thing that I think about now is not allowing those things to create resentment. And I think I live on optimism and time and as I continue to get older, I need to be thoughtful to not continue behaviors that are predicated on the future too much. But those are mistakes that can be judged if one looked at my income tax returns against how I've executed. They just, they're still not decisions I would do any differently today because they feel good. They, you know. My biggest mistakes on the professional side that a lot of people in the room probably relate. You know, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it. And sometimes we have a great idea and we're enamored with our own creativity and we don't skip a beat and we don't take a pause and say, wait, you know, that's a good idea, but is it a business? And, and what about the opportunity cost? So I can give you an example for those sports fans. I was obsessed with this idea that all these seats in the stadium go unused and you know, the first quarter of a game, second quarter, wouldn't it be great if you had an app where you can go ahead and move down and swap tickets so that a venue can sell an empty seat? knowing that no one's showing up by the third quarter. Like, really clever, really smart. You know, spent a few hundred thousand dollars to develop this app, app we launched it, you know, nobody cared. It wasn't a business, it was clever. So, small ideas take just the same amount of energy as big ideas, and it's really important that you be discerning as to what you choose to, to focus on. I think the biggest mistake people make in observing the enormity of information I consume over the last 10 years is not dying on their own sword. That to me is what I want this room to hear. It is fascinating to me how many people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s talk about regret by not making a decision they wanted to make and they made it out of fear of somebody's judgment that they valued at that time. And then if you work for somebody and you're not speaking your actual mind, you're just speaking what you think is accepted, that's the worst because that's where corporate animals get destroyed. Yeah. I think it's, it's necessary I've, or the corporation's gonna die for bigger businesses or smaller businesses. It doesn't matter if you gotta surround yourself with true yeah. sayers, which is sort of what you were saying, gut check the idea with some people who are gonna tell you it's a bad idea. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, private investing is a huge focus, I'm sure, for, well, I know for you guys, but I'm sure for folks in the room, we've got a breakout session on it later today. Um, you hear pitches, both of you, constantly. Can you tell us a little bit about, like, what makes a successful pitch in your in your mind, and how to how to be how to win? Yeah, I think I think about this topic a lot. I'm on Shark Tank, so you have to sort of you only have you know 60 minutes basically to determine whether or not this is a good idea. Um, I think I've learned a few things. Number one, most importantly, people have a tendency to think that they have to have all the answers uh, when they're making a pitch. And I'm not judging you whether you have all the answers. I'm judging you whether or not you have enough self-awareness. As Gary always talks about to know what you don't know, and that you have enough intellect and drive to go find the answers. And sometimes even with Shark Tank, somebody will come on the show and go, you just went on national TV. Did you think I wasn't gonna find out afterwards that you, know, you just fudged your number or, or it's just nonsense? So, um, you know, that's one. Two, uh, I, I'm looking to invest in an idea, I'm not looking to go on a rescue mission. So don't, don't basically ask me to throw you a preserver. Tell me that something has an opportunity to be a huge business, and I'm not have to basically take on a second job to go ahead and invest in you. And, and even in the early days, Gary and I talked about this, like, you just need to demonstrate some form of traction, right? Like, if I don't see some kind of traction, and traction can manifest in, last week you had you know, 10 followers on Instagram, now you have 100. I want to see demonstrated traction so that I'm not just bet, you know, betting on the idea. I think Matt hit the most important point. There's two things that, after all these years, that I feel like from the failures and the successes stand out to me. Number one, I now 100% completely pass if somebody bullshits an answer. 
if I ask them a specific business question and they, they feel like they're too scared to tell the truth and the truth is I don't know and they start pontificating about something that I, and I ask questions that I know, um, I'm checked out. So I think that's becoming more of a thing to think about. Uh, number two, I think it's demonstrating that you're the right person. I now, when I look back at my wins and my losses, it's very clear to me that when I bet on the person, it worked out, and when I bet on the idea, and I imposed on myself what I would do with the business, not what the person in front of me is doing, I've done quite poorly, and so for me, it's, I'm betting on the, I am betting on the jockey over the horse all day going forward. Uh, that's so true, I mean, there's something to be said for cliches, right? It's all about the jockey. It is 100% true. A, a, a good idea will never eclipse a bad founder. And so it's so important to spend the time. And, and, and I have backed people uh, who with a mediocre idea, knowing that they're going to iterate their way to a better place, and those have been the best decisions. And the worst decisions I've ever made with investments, like Gary said, is when you said, oh, this is a really amazing idea. So we'll just swap out, and one in particular, we'll just swap out the founder. Like, it, doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. So never talk, and so what are the tells? Uh, number one, are they, are they truthful with themselves? Do they have a blend of confidence and humility? And I think those two, they, they seem like those are a duality, but they're actually quite related. Are you confident enough to accept the fact that you're heading in the wrong direction? And are, are you humble enough to go ahead and acknowledge that you are heading in the wrong direction so that you pivot before it's too late, right? Because you, we're all, off, everyone in this room, if we're moving in the wrong direction, personally in our relationships, professionally with our businesses, we are offered an opportunity by the universe to make a change before we're on the precipice of our own destruction. The question is, do you have what it takes to recognize it? And do you have the humility to answer the call? And I find very few people have that. And those who do will always be successful. People, to Matt's point, there are a lot of founders that rather have the company go out of business than admit they're wrong. Those are the majority, wouldn't you think? A hundred percent, it's wild. There's a badge of honor in America to have tried and failed where I'm saying I'm wrong feels yucky. It's fascinating. It's especially true because of the nature of how much money is in the system. I mean, the amount of emails that I've gotten from kids, I got this one email and it starts with like, don't worry, literally, Gary, don't worry, I'm fine, but just wanted you to know we're shutting down the business and you know, your $250,000 you know, investment is going to zero. Here's the information for your lawyer, this and that. I replied, motherfucker, I don't care about you. You just lost a quarter of a million dollars. <laughs> he, like there's so much entitlement that like, don't worry about me, I'm okay. But like we are in that place. It's insane, Brent. Like, like literally, like people are starting companies now because there's so much money in the system and when they lose, there's like no accountability or worry for the you people that wrote the checks. And that's just the nature of the game because guess what? The 99% of VCs don't care about their startups. They want one to get through and win and return the whole fund. So it's just the nature of the game. So could that email have been? Written better? Yes. Oh, obviously. <laughs> but I know I just lost $250,000. I know you're gonna call me an mf -er, But here's what I learned. I'm gonna do it better the next time. Give me another By the way, the best part of entrepreneurship versus corporate is you can say the word. <laughs> I got it. I see it. Just creating some context. Go ahead, mister. Would you have done, would, if that person had come to you with humility and an outline of what they learned from the failure, would you have given them another 250? Maybe. I have one. I have a company, I'll say it, because I have some press from the past, called Homer Logistics. And it was a, mm -hmm. you know, it was a great mm -hmm. idea. It was basically trying to solve the last mile, like yes. a people have solved. But yep. a bunch of engineers, and they were going about it in a really intelligent way in yep. the competitive space of delivery in New York City. And it had a, you know, the algorithms down, the engineers. It looked like it would win. And this founder did everything humanly possible to pull it off. And he sends this email. He goes, I, ha I have tried my best. I have a little bit of money left. The responsible thing for me to do is basically do an ad wire. I am so sorry. Here's, here's my trajectory. Here's what I went through. And then I sent him back an email. I said, I remember. hey, good for you. Let me know when you're ready to start your next day. Yep. It cost me a million dollars, which I would love. But at the same time, he demonstrated to me he probably absorbed the right lessons from this. And, and in fact, the, what I've been spent 
where did I go wrong? I, I then scrutinized my behavior. Like, how did I not see it? What could I have done? We're, we're also in the greatest era of fake entrepreneurs because there's so much money in the system and being an entrepreneur is cool and being a founder is cool. So number fours and number sevens and number nines are taking the leap in a way that we've never seen before. And so we need to be more thoughtful as investors. And I'm not point of investment, what to look for in investment. One book I recommend to everybody in this room is Bad Blood. Has anybody read Bad Blood? Or seen the doc, right? So Bad Blood is a book about you know, Theranos and everything went through. But what I, one particular point that I think the book illustrates so well, and I encounter this all the time with startups and pitching. You know, somebody will be pitching an idea and they'll have enticed an advisor who is from a different generation or an entirely different industry. You know, it'll be a tech company that yep. has, you know, some, some NFL quarterback on its advisory board trying to seduce me to think as if that really matters. And, and when you look at bad blood, it's an illustration of collecting a bunch of people that were designed social so currency would, so that you wouldn't look. And social you'd, currency. You'd, exactly, that you'd be impressed. So to me, that is a, a sure tell. When somebody tries to surround themselves with people who are meant to impress you but know nothing about the business, run the other way. Because I have seen billionaires make the dumbest decisions in areas outside their core expertise. Social currency carries a lot of weight and we're in a headline reading society and people aren't doing their due diligence and they're just going with the brand equity of the people around it, absolutely. Right. And also like escalation. And by the way, by the way, there was a sneaky way that that got really tough. You know, <laughs> I always say to Matt, we, we had a fun together, like when I wasn't an investor, my first three investments were Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. When I was an investor, I got much stupider and where that era came from was similar to people left field. Also, I call it the BJ Armstrong syndrome. When, when Companies came in 2012, 13, 14, 15, 16. A lot of the pitches are, here's our founding team. He was number nine at Google. He was number 13 at Facebook. I was number four at Pinterest. Three B.J. Armstrongs. And if you don't know the reference, B.J. Armstrong played with Michael Jordan. You know, everybody's a hero when the alpha's on the team. But when they go into other teams, they get exposed. And the amount of mistakes I made and watched other people make because three people came from Facebook, Google, and Instagram, but they were number fours. They were number nines. There is a big drop off from number one to number two in this game. The whole thing. And also the other big thing that we learned from our fund, not that we, you know, not we did well enough, we just are always critical about what we could have done, is just because you're on trend and you spotted the trend doesn't mean you spotted the winner. Once you identify the trend, which I think Gary's phenomenal on, and in this room I'm sure a lot of people have trend spotting, now you need to discern which is the winner of the three companies that are pursuing the exact same idea at the same time, because I guarantee you three people are pursuing the exact same idea. And that's where the danger of listening to somebody else's endorsement they got a celebrity, like, oh, this AI thing is gonna be huge. There's somebody somewhere else that's working on that. Or just going on intuition. I was able to spot things and continue to, but in 09, 10, 11, there were so few people doing it. And by the time we were doing our fund, 14, 15, you know, the reality was, and he's referring to flat out something I should have done better, was I was right about so many macro trends, we just picked the wrong one, and I had zero interest in even doing any due diligence. Yeah. That is the truth. I was like, no, it's Karen, motherfucker. Like, Karen, shouldn't we call her? No, I believe in Karen. <laughs> I like the way she winked. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you mentioned Shark Tank, I'm gonna, uh, yeah. just, what's the most, ton of fans in the audience, what's the most fun part about being on that show? Well, first of all, it's an amazing experience uh, to be part of it, and actually, it began, and probably it was a conversation with my son. My son's a huge fan. I don't know how many watch Shark Tank with your kids, but uh, my son could care less about sports. I'm the only kid in America who's interested in no element of my current job. Not interested in the NFL, not interested in soccer, not interested. There's one thing he's interested in, is Kevin O'Leary's royalty deals. <laughs> so he'd sit there on the couch and he, would, and he would always admire them and he would turn to me afterwards like, hey dad, did you, you, know, did you do any royalty deals today? I was like, this is nonsense. There are things in the true world. And I remember one time I was like, you know what, Matt, I'm effectively a shark in my real job. You know, I'm going to go on Shark Tank. He's like, yeah, good luck with that. And then he's like, no, I'm going to go on Shark Tank. And then I, I spent about a year talking to the producers. This is not the kind of thing you decide to do, by the way. There's no like, because it's your money. Well, it's your money, but also, how do you get on Shark Tank as a shark? There's no, there's no template, there's no application. But I worked at like everything else for a year. I really cared about it. I loved the show. And then, and then they, uh, they gave me a shot. And I, I, the part that startled me the most 
you know, you'd walk on set, and you assume because it's TV that some of it's got to be manufactured, right? It's not authentic. I'm, I'm waiting for the instructions, like, you know, where's the orientation? And I sit in the chair, and they put you next to Lori Guineer. I mean, you know, Lori Guineer. Yeah. So Lori's like, meant to, like, onboard you gently, like, you'll do fine. And so I sit next to Lori. I'm shaking like a rabbit. I'm being totally honest. Like, I, I, that morning, it's like, I, I gotta back out. This is horrifying. I can't believe I'm agreed to do this. And I decided that one thing that was gonna get me through this experience was Eminem. You know, the poet from the <laughs> that I was going to put him on a loop and put my little headphones on. The poet. There's a videotape of I was a deer in the headlights. You know that the cliche, like I was that cliche. I was sitting there like, and, and, nobody, <laughs> and nobody's like, they're just talking over you. And I'm like, oh my, this is going to be a disaster. And at one point, Mark Cuban leans over. I can't remember what he says. He leans over and he goes, hey, Matt. Now, I can't remember what he said, but what I heard was, hey, Matt, did you come this far just to blow it? You're just going to sit there? Because <laughs> <laughs> I could see the look of dripping disdain like, in his eyes. Like, You're pathetic. And so, See the Matrix? One of my favorite movies, right? <laughs> it was truly the most Matrix moment of my entire life. Like, everything sort of stopped, and I was like, in my head, thinking, are you really going to blow this? Like, this is something you worked so hard for. And the bullets just sort of stopped, and I just sort of turned around and said, you know what? I've probably invested as much money, if not more, than everybody in the stage. This is what I do in my day job. I'm not going to go down like this. I am just going to go out and swing. And from that moment, the next 15 minutes of that pitch, everything changed. I just became natural, intuitive, whatever. And at the end of it all, Lori Glicker near me, she's like, Matt, um, on scale, I'm going to do She's like, I can't give you 100 because nobody does. But that was a thing. And nobody in 10 years has walked onto this set and acted like you every day one. That's awesome. Yeah, so pretty incredible experience that everything you see on the show that you love uh, is exactly like it is, only it's a longer version of set. The competition is real. Everybody, like, because you're talking about your own money. It's interesting how you turn into a primal beast when you're a couple hundred grand at stake. <laughs> like, there are no theatrics. And, and uh, that's what really amazed me. I'm like, wait, none of this is sort of manufacturing car for TV. It's just longer. So competition is fierce. All, you know, there's no niceties. And everybody just goes after it. You turn into literally an animal. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. So you're both incredibly busy people. You squeeze more time out of a 24-hour day than the average person. How do you decompress in your lives? I watched the New York Jets. I do love garage sailing. That's, that's been your fun little pet project recently. I, I just got so many emails that said, Gary, cool, but I don't have any money. And I'm like, crap, what did I do when I had no money? Oh, I went to garage sales and flipped stuff on eBay. So I'm teaching people how to go from $20 to $4,000. And it's working. And let me tell you something. Getting an email from somebody that went from $113 in negative balance in their bank account to going to garage sales and thrift stores and yard sales and four months later having 3,000 bucks and it really, really, really means something has been a hell of a lot more fun than you know, most things I do. I'd say I, I, I'm fortunate enough to live a big life. My life <coughs> takes me all over the place. So the, the opposite, I live a very simple life. Outside professionally, I'm, I'm all about my kids. Um, my wife is my best friend, so we're always doing DIY projects with her. And, just hang out the house. That's my decompression. Any tricks? So any tricks to stay connected when you're a busy, you know, trying to give 100 percent everywhere? Connected to your family. Your it's intent. Yeah. When you actually care to, it's not very hard. Awesome. Well, I, I, um, I, you know, I went through a divorce, tough divorce. Was there any good divorces? But, um, but, but it actually made me a better father. That you have to be so intentional because now your time is up. So I put a moat around those kids, and I have a, an army of people to protect that little castle, and I will not compromise. So you know, every Wednesday, no matter where I am in the world, I have to fly to China on a Sunday night. I'm back by Wednesday, and you know, every weekend I'm with the kids. So the, the good part is that it's made me very intentional. So to Gary's point, it's cliche, but it is about the time you spend, the quality that you spend with them. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, questions. Questions. Uh, my name is Ray Centeno. I I'm a and I don't have anything to sell. I created a suicide prevention app that uh, is for veterans and uh, 
what's important for people to, to, to learn, to understand, how do I quantify or monetize or um, make it where people want to like download it and follow it? And well, those are two very different things, right? You know, getting people to download it and is a marketing execution to put it in front of you know, veterans, right? Monetizing it, you have to decide how you wanna make dollars, right? One of the ways I think you can do that is by having an overarching sponsor of the whole app. I think a lot of times when you're doing such good for something we collectively have so much heart and pride in in our country, there's a lot of Fortune 100 brands that might be willing to subsidize. Obviously you don't want to take money from the people that are dealing with these mental issues, but you might be able to get a quarter million dollar check that says this app is brought to you by American Airlines or Chase Bank or MetLife or what have you. So for me, the, what I've seen work successfully in these scenarios is going to a Fortune 100 and seeing if they want to associate themselves with that kind of cause. You need to get subsidized by a Fortune 100. And it, to put it out there, to just do the same thing you just said, you know, contents, contents, it's, contents. It's either content or advertising, right? So to me, content first. You should join 500 Facebook groups and become part of the community and build awareness. You should search military hashtags on Instagram and then comment in that $1.80 strategy. And then if you are able to get money from a sponsor running Facebook ads against and LinkedIn ads against professionals that show that they've worked in the military is always a good way to go. And the beautiful part about your app in particular is it's got a built-in predefined audience. So a lot of people in the audience are gonna struggle with who is their actual target end user and identifying that to the precision that Gary's talking about. So that $100 spent is $100 spent on the exact customer who's gonna use it, your audience is defined. So to Gary's point, you can find the groups and services and features and people who are going to need that service fairly easily. And my other question is, can, is, it, is it a business or is it just? It's a business if you get a sponsor. It's not a business if you refuse to charge people that are having mental health issues, which I would recommend, and clearly what you're gonna do. So. It's a business if you get a sponsor. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi. Hi. Thanks for being here, guys. My name is Heidi Howes, at Heidi Howes, H-O-W-E-S, on Instagram and Facebook. And I'm here, actually, with my nonprofit organization that we founded. It's Mothers in Arms. And we are by single mothers for single mothers. I have my board here with me. And uh, Matt, I loved hearing your story about your mom. And would love to have your support with our organization. We're very young, we're about six months old. And right now, our mission is to support, empower, and nurture single mothers and their families with education, resources, and uh, sharing resources, learning to share resources. So, my question for you today is how, or what advice do you have for us as we're building our organization? We hope to support single mothers in creating businesses of their own, and we hope to have a social enterprise wing of our nonprofit as well. So first of all, um, a topic I'm passionate about, and we talk a lot about my mom and watching her, uh, her journey and just the heroic circumstances she was able to go through and lift herself up, so kudos to you. What, what, what gap in the market do you think you're fulfilling, first of all, just so I understand? The gap is all the gaps that single mothers experience, you know, in the support. They're really an invisible population, um, and they're trying to caregive and provide at the same time. So they're experiencing incredible amounts of stress and incredible amounts of challenges. And so we want to fill in all the gaps for those mothers and their children, which is about 33% of our children. And they're aspiring entrepreneurs. That's who you're, who you're targeting. Well, we're we're targeting right now. We're a local organization, and we hope to grow. But we're targeting all single mothers, self-identified single mothers in Columbus at the moment, Central Ohio. Well, good. I care so much about this. So why, why don't you connect with me on Instagram, and then we'll just have a one-to-one -one conversation. I give you the best advice. But I, I fund scholarships for single mothers, and again, I'm very passionate about it. So rather than give you a one-minute answer, I'll give you a 20-minute answer, and we'll have a conversation. Thank okay. You. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.
Like, yeah. It was never a company. I was on active duty, and my grandfather had passed away. I learned that he left the only copy to me the recipe. <laughs> That's cool. And, yeah, I'm like, I'm going to start from my country. I'm doing my thing. That's what I thought, you know, my sole purpose is. I work for a generation military family. Wow, thank you. So I was doing my thing. I was at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and I, I have this piece of paper he didn't even leave to his own children. I'm the third grandkid. So I, I took it upon myself. I guess this is where, like, the purpose starts pivoting. And you have to make a decision of what you're going to do. You can live a comfortable life. And my military folks, that first and 15th paycheck is really nice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it is. But there's something there, you know, when it comes to entrepreneurship that pushes you to do something that you never thought of. You don't know where it's going. You don't have any instructions. Sure. Um, so five years later, I, I started the company while I was on active Mr. Hagen, you'll appreciate this. When I was six months old, I had a wonderful experience of getting ethically rejected at Shark Tank. Mm. Love it. Fools. That's what I said. Yes. But that was good. That was great. Adversity um, is the foundation of success. It, it was wonderful. I just, you know, I took my strides. It was, it was all right. Uh, Kevin O'Leary, he's like, there's a million sauce companies. What are you doing here? Wait, like, wait, you, wait, oh, you actually got on and, yes, you, and you didn't yes. get a deal. Oh, this is gets interesting. There is, a, there is a million sauce companies. Okay. <laughs> so, but I was like, Lloyd Reiner just invested in one uh, the previous season. And, um, yeah, by the way, not a reason not to do more to do. I mean, right. it's, just, it's just a fact, right? So um, he's trying to you know, play off of my how confident am I about this. And I have to admit, at the time, it was kind of getting to me. Yeah, it's just a sauce company. I mean, I sell sauce. I mean, I have eight. <laughs> To sell it, or 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 to make or to make tons of profit in perpetuity. Well, you're 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 in a good space if you're a consumer, you know, consumer product, right? It's our favorite space. Right, right. And and the reality is there's there is sort of a rhythm to these things. Your your sales should be doubling every year until you get to a certain scale. So you're showing more doors and you're showing velocity. You're eventually gobbled up by a larger entity because then they can eliminate your overhead and they can instantly make it profitable, right? So there is. Do you want to sell it? I, I would say no. Right. Right. It's your grandpa. Your, you your know, revenue? it's the. Re what are you doing? What are you doing here now? What's your revenue? So we only get eighty thousand this year okay. so far. I mean, are you? Are you? Do you have a Shopify store? We have Scrum Shopify. We just set up our Amazon store. And what percentage of your overall business is Amazon and Shopify? With eighty-seven. Got it. You need to you need to go all in on those two channels because you have so much more control. The retailer has all the leverage with you right now. Kroger's has the leverage, not you. You need to produce content and advertising at scale to build a brand, and it needs to go through Shopify. Period. And that needs to be your religion. Number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Then you can worry about Amazon. Then you can worry about Kroger's and Shoprite and Safeway and and HEB. The other piece of advice too is, as Gary knows, we have a whole thousand people who work on this. There are formulas to be successful on those platforms, right? The information is out there. It's not. It's not a mystery. You just got to work a little bit harder to figure it out. What he's referring to is your CAC and LTV numbers, your cost of customer from Instagram and Facebook against the value of that customer over time. You've got to get those numbers right with the creative and the media spend on this side. Like, you you're you're going about this way too traditionally. You're putting more emphasis and value on retail when you need to be, so for example, the wine brand I started, Empathy, I'm making it only direct to consumer until I have remarkable leverage and then I'm gonna make the retailers beg for it, not the reverse. It's very delicious 
I'm sure it's fucking wonderful. Listen to me. Listen to me. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't care if it's the greatest sauce of all time. You can't give the leverage to the retailer. You need to go sit back at this awesome table and only talk about Shopify and only talk about direct to consumer. Use the fact that you got into Kroger's and got distribution to validate your own Somebody believed in you, they thought it was good enough to put it on the shelves, and you're moving product, you should use that. It sounds like you're still half in. If you're, if you're gonna commit yourself to it, go all in, right? Burn the boats, as I like to say. You've gotten enough validation to know there's something here, and he entrusted you with that recipe. That's the validation. He knew that you would probably make the right call. So the thing that I don't feel that like you're doing right now is you're not like, lean in, you're onto something, you sound highly intelligent, so you wouldn't be wasting your time, but it feels like you haven't fully committed yourself. So lean into Shopify, lean into Amazon, use Kroger's as an endorsement so you get confidence and, and push it. I, I think, I, yeah, I mean, that, that's where I'm going. Whether you've leaned in or not, you've got the wrong strategy. Anybody who's making a consumer product in 2019 that is let, letting big box retailers have the leverage is making a massive mistake. Period. So then, Good. so here's the thing: you need to hold. It. You should double your sales price. If you don't double your sales price by next year, then be about it. All right. All right. Good luck. <laughs>
Because the reality is people's, don't, people's actions don't match the ambition coming out of their mouth. Everybody here wants to build something bigger but they don't want to post more. They don't want to reply to everybody. That's fine, leaves more for me. Also the other thing I find fascinating too, every single trend that I've ever invested in, I'm sure Gary has invested, was written about by somebody else before I made that book. There are no original thoughts, no original ideas. Every single thing is out there, you know, printed on the internet, commented on somewhere. And it's pattern recognition. I know text messaging is gonna rock because it is email 1996. We're now letting people text us, finally, after 15 years, which excites me because I can't wait to exploit that and ruin texting. And, and now it's gonna work because we pay attention to our texts and in 11 years after we're all done spamming it, we won't and we'll move on to the next. We build resi together. We're like, open table sucks. There should be another place where you go and it doesn't suck. So we build resi and it's And four tech. years later, you know. Not that complicated. It's all out there on the internet. Hefty nine figures, real flip. Yeah, real Just flip. execution. Yeah. All right, okay. one last question. Last question. Oh man, that dude got caught again. Dude, I'm gonna sneak your question in because you got screwed last time. So, I'm sorry for the lady behind you, but I'm definitely getting in the dude behind, number two. Go ahead. First of all, uh, I wanna welcome you all to Columbus, me, the New York native myself. Um, I think it's pretty amazing the information and content Joel is sharing. My name is Kevin Boyd, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Mile. That's M-Y-L-E. What was it? Mile, M-Y-L-E. Two-way marketplace. Great platform for individuals to post their events because everybody who's on the platform receives an alert within 50 miles of that particular event. So the days of I had no idea that was going on is now the paradigm shift to now I know what's going on. If they've downloaded the app. If they've downloaded the app. The problem is the behavior of your company is being done in other places. Absolutely. This is where Facebook is a problem for you. Mm-hmm. You understand? And, you, and to your point, the reason Uber and eBay are trillion dollar things is building two-way marketplaces are ridiculously hard. To the point where like, I don't even look at them anymore. Like legitimately do not inv- even take the first meeting because it's the hardest thing to pull off. Which is the reason why I'm asking you the question. So based on what we're trying to accomplish, I want to know what your recommendations would be because obviously the big thing To change your business. Okay. And I'm, I'm joking but I'm not. Keep going, I wanna give you an answer but, but I'm glad I got to say what I said. As long as you leave here knowing how outlandish it is to actually pull away and execute a two-way marketplace, I've done my job because it is that difficult at scale but keep going. I'm worried that you're thinking about macro technology theses, but it doesn't take away the part that very few companies in the last decade have built a two-way marketplace at scale because it's super hard and extremely capital intensive. And you're a niche which is being scratched for all of us by Facebook events and social media. So in this case, right, because I hear that, so in this situation when we look at that and we say from a competitive standpoint, because we get that all the time, like it's a thing of, hey, somebody already has this space. Yep. So it's like no room for it, but we all know. We don't believe in that because Matt's point earlier with Open Table, yeah, Open Table was dominating. We thought there was space. Yeah, so we were exploiting weakness, right? Go ahead. Got it. So no, I think I'm taking this. So at this point, it's less that you have competitors, it's more that the whole thing is super hard. There isn't a leading event two-way marketplace that happens on Facebook. So, question for you then on this one, right? So, when you look at Facebook events, I know we're getting deep here. From a B2B standpoint, we've identified a gap, right? Okay. So, our niche is tourism and transportation. Okay. Tourism industries or tourism bureaus are very interested in what we provide because of the fact that... If you show them demand. Right. Show them the demand and then on the backdrop is the data analytic content that they're interested in. At scale. Okay. You're gonna need, you know, to really get them. Yeah. Go ahead. Which is a part of the strategy is they are helping 
from a scale perspective by providing the content. Okay, I like that. I like that. So this is where we're starting to see kind of our spin wheel to be able to create that content. Right. So um, now it's all about how do we continue to elevate because the content piece is a critical part. Now that we've seen the interest from a B2B standpoint, we're trying to balance with the content from your local, everyday promoter, venue owner, so on and so forth. So that's the part that I'm curious in regards to if you have the Does the app exist? Yes, it does. How long has it been alive? It's been on Android and, and iOS for about two and a half years now. And don't bullshit me here. How many monthly active users do you have? So we're still early. Right? I know that. Yeah. How many? So don't lie. You're in big, big, big trouble. Okay. You've been at it for two and a half years. Yeah. You have 250. Right. One, uh, let me leave you with this, because I'm not looking to razz, I want you to win. Yeah. Nintendo started as a playing card company. My intuition is that you really know the space right. and that you went with what a lot of people did, which was the thing of the moment, apps. The same reason you're talking about you know, bots and, a, and internet of things. I think you should take a step back, use this moment to try to figure out if there's a more practical execution of your talent and knowledge in a container that is actually more of a business than what you're doing right now. Right? A service. Bro, I got so much. Yep. Because there's a four foot two inch tall woman in a yellow dress back there who's gonna actually physically kick my ass if I don't get us off stage. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So thank you both. Thank you very much. Thank you. Truly appreciate it. Great questions. Really appreciate everybody spending time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys, for listening. Please, please, please share the podcast and make sure you've subscribed because a bunch of you aren't subscribed and more importantly, a bunch of you listen every day and haven't told your friends it's the best podcast in the world. I'm watching. (laughs) Have a great day.